Due to the graphic consequences of today's disaster, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. It was 5.12 p.m. on August 5th, 1949, and Bob Yansen knew he was about to die. Yansen was in a low valley called Man Gulch in Montana's Helena National Forest. And all around him, smoke and flames filled the gulch. He had just come from the river at the mouth of the gulch, looking for a team of smoke jumpers that had parachuted down inside, but it was obvious he wouldn't be able to find them. Yansen couldn't even see 10 feet in front of him. He turned around to run the quarter mile back to his boat on the Missouri River, but it was too late. A blast of wind came up from the river towards the gulch, and a roar of flame erupted from the juniper bushes all around him. The wind spun the fire into a 600-foot tower of flames and hurled it across the gulch. It was a fire whirl, a tornado within a wildfire. Jansen dropped to his knees. For a second, he lost all consciousness, but luckily he came too. He crawled through the smoke towards the river, where the rest of his fire crew waited anxiously on the boat. Finally, he felt cool water at his fingertips. He had made it. Jansen glanced back at Man Gulch and the massive fire whirl tearing through it. He knew anyone caught in its path would not survive. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. This is our second episode on the 1949 Man Gulch Wildfire, a massive inferno that was the first to claim the lives of U.S. Forest Service smoke jumpers. Last week, we explored the conditions that created the powerful flames and the tragic circumstances that would lead to enormous damage and loss of life. This week, we'll follow the inferno as it burns through Man Gulch, We'll also examine the immediate and long-term aftermath of the tragedy for the region and the Forest Service. We'll jump into the flames right after this. The Man Gulch wildfire had ignited sometime in the early dawn hours of August 5th, but the dense growth of pines and a breeze from the Missouri River hid the smoke and flames for hours. Once the fire was discovered, it was already midday, and by the time the Missoula smoke jumpers parachuted into Man Gulch, flames had consumed 60 acres of the dense forest and counting. When the smoke jumpers landed, the fire was still contained on the south side of the gulch along its southern ridge. The other side of this ridge led down into the Merriweather Campground, a secluded but popular tourist destination. The primary concern for the smoke jumpers was to keep the fire from burning over the ridge into the campground. If that happened, tourists and rescuers alike would be trapped. But their priorities quickly changed. At 5.12 p.m., the foreman, an experienced smoke jumper named R. Wagner Dodge, was standing inside the gulch below the southern ridge. 
Beside him was fire guard Jim Harrison, who had come over the burning ridge from Merriweather campground shortly before the fire had spread. Both men were looking up at the tops of the ridgeline trees as they exploded into flame. They both understood what this meant. The fire was crowning. A crown fire spreads faster through the treetops than across the ground, covering about 120 feet a minute. Alarmed, Dodge and Jim turned to go warn the rest of the smoke jumpers, who were deeper into the gulch finishing their lunches. Dodge was especially worried about firebrands. These were flaming chunks of tree branches and bark that were literally hurled out of a crowning wildfire. The burning pieces could fly nearly a quarter mile in front of the main fire line. When firebrands land, they often start spot fires, individual small blazes that surrounded the main wildfire. When spot fires come together, a wildfire can expand unpredictably across roads, bridges, and even canyons. Dodge eyed the dry, grassy hillside as he and Jim moved up the gulch, keeping an eye out for firebrands and spot fires. Unfortunately, he was looking for danger in the wrong place. Just a few minutes later, at the mouth of the gulch near the river, the wildfire blew up. This was what Bob Jansen was witnessing and what he luckily was able to get away from. Wildfire blow-ups are an incredibly rare phenomenon. Few people have witnessed them and lived to tell about it. The wildfire quite literally explodes outward in a burst of oxygen and fuel, burning over hundreds of acres in just a few minutes. In Man Gulch, the blow-up was spawned by the fire whirl Jansen first witnessed. The wind came from two sides, over the Meriwether Canyon Ridge that was already burning, and up the gulch from the river. The 30-mile-per-hour wind spun the fire down into the lowest part of the gulch, where it had nearly killed Jansen. Then the whirl pushed the flames across the gulch and onto the opposite hillside. This north side of the gulch had fewer trees and was covered in thick cheat grass. The dry summer heat had cooked the long, waist-high stalks of grass into the perfect fuel for a wildfire. As the flames ignited the grass, the wildfire began moving faster than a human being could run. And with the wind blowing up the gulch, it reached a speed of 280 feet per minute. At that rate, it could burn the length of a football field in less than 70 seconds. And it was heading up through the gulch, directly toward the smoke jumpers. At 5.45 p.m., Dodge was leading his men down the gulch toward the river when he saw the towering flame and smoke a quarter mile up ahead. He froze, then spun around and shouted, We've got to head back up the hill, men. The 15 smoke jumpers and fire guard Jim Harrison turned and ran. Dodge yelled for everyone to drop their tools and make for the top of the grassy hill 200 yards ahead. By now, the wall of fire was only 100 yards behind them. They had less than a minute before it reached them. The top of the ridge was still several hundred feet higher in elevation, and the steep hill had nearly a 20% gradient. It was like trying to climb a stairwell covered in gravel, and the smoke jumpers struggled to keep their footing as they clawed for the top of the ridge. Dodge glanced back and saw the fire approaching fast. The rest of the men were right on his heels. Then suddenly, Dodge stopped. He crouched and pulled a pack of matches from his pocket. 
Then he lit one and dropped it into the grass at his feet. The rest of the smoke jumpers saw their foreman kneeling and assumed he was setting a backfire. Like fire trenches, backfires consume and eliminate potential fire fuel by burning the trees and grasses ahead of the fire. But backfires only work if the flames are able to burn against the wind. Otherwise, the backfire simply expands the wildfire as it moves forward. And the wind was certainly blowing away from the wildfire in Man Gulch. The men could feel the 1,500-degree heat blasting out of the oncoming flames. Setting a backfire didn't make any sense, yet that's what Dodge was doing. Dodge crouched in front of his small, growing fire, waving at his men. He shouted something as they passed him, but unfortunately, the roar of the 600-foot wall of flame behind them was too deafening. As one smoke jumper ran by, Dodge faintly heard him say, the hell with that, I'm getting out of here. The wildfire was blazing over the grassy hillside just 50 yards from where Dodge was kneeling. It would be upon him in seconds. But instead of running, Dodge laid down in the blackened circle of his own fire. He was directly in the wildfire's path as the 300-foot-thick wall of flame raced toward him. Coming up, Dodge sees a world transformed by fire. Now, back to the story. At 5.55 p.m. on August 5th, 1949, 14 smoke jumpers and fire guard Jim Harrison were running for their lives up the steep northern hill of Man Gulch. The massive wildfire was almost at their heels, moving nearly 10 feet per second through the thick, dry grass. The leader of the group, smoke jumper Wagner Dodge, had stopped and started a small fire in front of the oncoming wildfire. Then he stepped through the flames of his own making and laid down in the burned area. Dodge had tried to wave to the rest of the men to join him, but they kept running for the top of the northern grassy hillside. There was a ridge along the top called a rim rock, and it would become the dividing line between the living and the dead. They were side-hilling, or running laterally across a hill with no trail. They couldn't turn and run directly uphill, it was far too steep. The nearly 40-degree slope was also covered in loose rocks. One wrong step, and a smoke jumper would end up falling back down the hill into the wildfire. Just then, two of the smoke jumpers, Robert Salee and Walter Rumsey, saw a slight gap in the rim rock just above them. It looked like a chance to break over the ridge to the other side before the fire caught up with them. The two men peeled off and ran as straight uphill as they could. They covered the hundred yards to the rim rock and crammed through the opening. Then they pushed through to the other side and emerged in a new valley untouched by fire. They could still hear the roar of the flames charging up the ridge behind them. Salih looked back in time to see the wall of flame hit the top of the ridge. There were fewer trees and grass along the rim rock, and he was surprised to see the flames were now only 10 feet high. But Salih also saw that the fire was dancing. The flames were weaving in the wind blowing over the top of the ridge, igniting swatches of the scarce undergrowth and flaring up like match heads. Then, the fire rolled over the top of the ridge straight towards them. Luckily, Salih and Rumsey climbed onto the pile of rocks. 
The flames licked around the edges of the rock pile where the men dodged bursts of fire. It quickly burned around the rocks and continued downhill into the pristine valley. Salee and Rumsey had been spared. But on the other side of the rim rock, back in Man Gulch, the rest of the smoke jumpers weren't so lucky. They had kept on a diagonal path toward the top of the grassy hill, looking for a way over the rim rock. And the fire was still coming up behind them at 600 feet per minute, almost twice as fast as the men could run. Suddenly, one of them lost his footing. A sickening crack came from his leg as it snapped in two. Unfortunately, nobody heard the crack or his holler as he fell. But nobody would have been able to help him anyway. The injured smoke jumper fell backwards toward the oncoming flames. He disappeared into the fire with a scream. Farther up the hill, another smoke jumper turned to see a figure shrouded in smoke bolt past him. It was a huge eight-point buck with no hair left on its body, only steaming, scorched skin. The deer only made it a few more yards before it collapsed and died. But the dozen remaining smoke jumpers and Jim Harrison kept running. They covered 375 yards in two minutes. This was a pace similar to running a mile in nine minutes, and they'd done it while running uphill in heavy fire gear. Still, it wasn't enough. At 5.56, the fire caught up to the rest of the smoke jumpers. The flames were 20 feet long, reaching out in advance of the wall of fire. These burned up all the oxygen within several feet of the oncoming wildfire. This made the wildfire more deadly than any other kind. Wildfires suck up so much oxygen that it's impossible to breathe, even yards away from the flames. As they took their final steps, the men suddenly had no air. The heat from the fire reached 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. At that temperature, a single breath can be fatal. It scorched their lungs as they gasped for air. One by one, they passed out and fell. The flames consumed their bodies. But back down the hill, Wagner Dodge was still alive. Dodge stood up in the middle of a black, ashy patch of ground about a hundred feet square. By setting his backfire, he had burned up the fuel in this area before the wildfire reached it. The wildfire had literally burned around Dodge's inert body as he lay in the ashes of his own fire. Dodge remembered the heat blast nearly lifting him up two or three times as the massive wildfire burned over him. But while his clothes and face were black and charred and his eyes were red and watery, he hadn't been burned. Dodge checked his watch. It was 6.10 p.m. Just 20 minutes had passed since the wildfire blew up, but the entire gulch had burned through. Flames had engulfed all 3,000 acres of Man Gulch, a little under four and a half square miles, in less than 10 minutes. All that was left was a two-mile stretch of smoldering embers and charred trees. Stunned by the black wasteland around him, Dodge set out to find the rest of his smoke jumper crew, dead or alive. Meanwhile, the fire was still active along the ridge into Meriwether Canyon. Bob Yansen and his ground crew had continued upriver to Meriwether Campground. Now they were attempting to put out the fire from the Meriwether side. 
Jansen knew that Jim Harrison, the campground fire guard, had gone over the ridge and joined the smoke jumpers before the fire. He could tell because Harrison disappeared into the fire line at the top of the ridge. Jansen hoped that Harrison and the smoke jumpers were somewhere alive, still fighting the fire. It would be several more hours until he found out how wrong he was. Back up on the burned hillside in Man Gulch, Dodge found a survivor, 24-year-old Joe Sylvia. He had made it about 200 feet from where Dodge had set his backfire. Sylvia was sitting on a flat section of rock when Dodge approached him. His clothing had burned away. The flesh on his face was peeling like an onion skin. When he lifted an arm toward Dodge, the foreman saw that Sylvia's hands were burned down to charred stumps. But Sylvia could still talk. He said, I should have stayed with you. I would have made it. I just couldn't tell what you wanted. I just didn't know. Sylvia kept talking, almost delirious. He was in a state of euphoria. The fire had scorched so deep into Sylvia's tissues that his nerve endings were burnt away. Mercifully, he wasn't feeling any pain. After calming the young man for a few minutes, Dodge left his water canteen with Sylvia and went to look for other survivors. Unfortunately, Sylvia couldn't lift the canteen with his burned hands. He simply sat on the rock, waiting. Up on the ridge, Salih and Rumsey heard shouting a few hundred feet away from the rock slide that had saved their lives. When they went back up on the charred ridge, they found another smoke jumper, Bill Hellman. Like Sylvia, Hellman was burned almost beyond recognition. Skin was hanging in patches from his face, arms, and legs. He begged Salih for a drink of water, and Salih helped him drink from his canteen. But Hellman quickly vomited the water back up. He tried again, but his throat and stomach were scorched from the hot air he had breathed. The muscle spasms forced him to retch the water back up. Still, he kept trying to drink. Hellman was in a state of delirium, but he was also in serious pain. Salih went looking for a first aid kit he had dropped back over the ridge in Man Gulch. As he reached the top of the ridge, Salih spotted Dodge coming up towards them. Dodge told them about Sylvia. Then he, Rumsey, and Salih planned their next move. The charred gulch was eerily silent around them as they whispered. The fire was still burning on the Meriwether Canyon Ridge across from them, and its flickering glow illuminated burnt lumps all over the gulch. Some of these were tree stumps and dead animals. Others were the burned bodies of Jim Harrison and the other dozen smoke jumpers. If Sylvia or Hellman were going to get out of the gulch alive, they needed to reach help, fast. Unfortunately, the smoke jumper's radio had been destroyed upon parachute landing. The men decided that Rumsey would stay with Hellman to keep him calm. Salih and Dodge would go down to the Meriwether campground for help. With a silent nod, the men parted ways. Dodge and Salih headed back into Man Gulch towards the river. Rumsey and Hellman stayed put, watching the dying wildfire on the opposite ridge. At 8.50 p.m., Dodge and Salih finally made it to the Meriwether campground after following the river up from Man Gulch. Bob Jansen was stunned to see the smoke jumper foreman. 
He thought Dodge's crew was still fighting the fire from the gulch. Dodge quickly told him about the blow-up and the 11 men still missing, and Jansen called in a rescue team from Helena, including a pair of doctors. It was past midnight on August 6th by the time Jansen and his rescue team reached the deadly rim rock above Man Gulch. Though the wildfire was now burning far down the adjacent valley, Man Gulch was still smoldering. Spot fires licked flames over the trees and grass all over the gulch. The team heard the occasional crackling of trees exploding on the hillside as the sap boiled until it burst from the heat. The team also heard Hellman wailing at the top of the ridge. He was crying for water. They reached Hellman and Rumsey just before 1 a.m. The doctors on the rescue team loaded Hellman onto a stretcher to evacuate him. Several of the men cried as they carried the stretcher downhill. Jansen and the rest of his team continued into Man Gulch. They retraced the final steps of the smoke jumpers' frantic race for safety, following the horrific smell of burned flesh in the wind. Then, at 1.50 a.m., they heard a short cry. It was Joe Sylvia, a hundred feet away, and still perched on the rock where Dodge left him. His canteen was full. He hadn't had a drink of water in nearly seven hours. But when Jansen and the team reached him, Sylvia was still as euphoric as he had been when Dodge first found him. He wasn't in pain. He was dying. One of the doctors on the team later described why this was. He said the sensory system dumps into the bloodstream. Usually it takes until the next day to clog your kidneys. The doctors and Jansen decided it was too dangerous to move Sylvia in the dark. His subcutaneous fat had burned away, leaving him fully exposed to the chilly night air. Instead, the team huddled around the happy, burned man to keep him warm. The sun rose a little after 4 a.m. on the 6th, and Jansen divided his team. Some went down to the river to evacuate the two burned smoke jumpers. The rest spread out in a line to comb the hillside for bodies. It only took a few minutes to find the first charred corpse. It was Jim Harrison, the Meriwether campground fire guard. Jansen had known Harrison personally, so when he examined the body, he recognized several personal items. It took another 24 hours to find the rest of the smoke jumpers' bodies. Salee and Dodge took turns identifying the remains. The last corpse discovered was that of the smoke jumper who had broken his leg. He had rolled nearly to the bottom of the gulch. Dodge didn't leave Man Gulch until the last body was found. But when he finally returned to the smoke jumper headquarters in Missoula, there was more bad news waiting for him. Neither Sylvia nor Hellman had survived their terrible burns. Both had died of kidney failure in the hospital within hours of arrival. All in all, the Man Gulch wildfire had claimed 13 lives and left only three survivors, Dodge, Salee, and Rumsey. Bob Jansen finally returned home after nightfall on August 7th, where he told his wife to burn his clothes. He said they smelled of death. By the time the Man Gulch wildfire was finally extinguished, a total of 450 firefighters, including Jansen's men, had participated in battling the flames. But the consequences were far from over. After the survivors returned home, the questions began. 
Just how did the smoke jumpers find themselves directly in the path of the fire? How come Dodge, Salee, and Rumsey survived when the other trained men did not? And why did the fire blow up the way it did? The Forest Service, the victims' families, and even the survivors themselves wanted answers. Coming up, the investigation in Man Gulch takes another tragic toll. Now, back to the story. The Man Gulch wildfire in August 1949 killed 13 firefighters and burned nearly 5,000 acres of Montana's Helena National Forest. It left many questions in its ashes. Six weeks after the fire, on September 26, 1949, the Forest Service convened a board of review to investigate the terrible sequence of events. The board interviewed each of the three surviving smoke jumpers, as well as Bob Jansen and several expert foresters. The first question everybody had was how these three men had survived, especially R. Wagner Dodge. The escape fire had saved Dodge's life, and it could have saved the other smoke jumpers, but at the time, none of them recognized what Dodge was doing. This was because Dodge had essentially invented this life-saving practice on the spot. He had discovered that by lighting a fire to burn out the fuel in a small area, a firefighter could actually survive a blow-up. No smoke jumper had ever thought to use the escape fire technique in the field until Dodge did in Man Gulch. This information was one of the few benefits to emerge from the tragedy. It became a standard training procedure for smoke jumpers and subsequent generations of wildland firefighters. The Forest Service also developed an aluminum-coated fire shelter that could be quickly deployed in the event of a blow-up. By setting an escape fire and laying under the fire shelter, wildland firefighters were able to replicate Dodge's survival method. These emergency techniques also became standard procedure. But they still weren't guaranteed to save lives. In 2013, a hotshot crew on the Yarnell Hill Fire in Arizona was also caught in a wildfire blowup. They set an escape fire, but the 2,000-degree heat consumed all the oxygen in the area. All 19 firefighters were killed surpassing Man Gulch's death toll and becoming one of the deadliest fires in history. And while Dodge had been lucky to survive even with his escape fire, he wasn't as lucky as Salee and Rumsey. According to most of the testimonies given at the review board, the two men should have been dead. The gap in the rim rock was simply a lucky discovery, as was the rock slide on the other side that protected the two men once the fire jumped the ridge. But the fact that they even reached the rim rock to begin with was nothing short of a miracle. As the fire closed in on them, Salee and Rumsey ran almost seven miles per hour in heavy clothing to reach the rim rock, faster than most of the other men. Subsequent visits by investigators with stopwatches found that nobody could match that uphill pace. Granted, none of the investigators had a 600-foot wall of fire chasing them uphill. They also found that the fire weakened as it rolled over the ridge. This matched Salee's description of 10-foot flames. Salee also testified about the behavior of the fire as it hit the top of the ridge and how it seemed to slow down. His description of the flames dancing in the wind inspired a new set of theories about the blow-up. 
And it was the investigation of these theories that led to the final death inside Man Gulch. On November 9, 1949, Bob Janssen returned to Man Gulch with wildfire expert Harry Gisborne. The gulch was still blackened and dead, even three months after the fire. Gisborne was investigating his theory that the blow-up wasn't because of a fire whirl, but some other cause. This went directly against what Janssen himself had seen at the mouth of the gulch. In fact, Janssen had almost been killed by the fire whirl. He agreed to show Gisborne the area where he saw the fire cross the gulch and tear up toward the smoke jumpers in hopes that they could put these other theories to rest. When they reached the top of the ridge, Janssen showed Gisborne the clear evidence of a fire whirl. The trees were all blown down in the same direction, toward where the smoke jumpers perished. Gisborne was happy to be wrong, and he spent most of the hike back positing new theories about how the fire whirl formed. But unfortunately, Gisborne had a heart condition. During a rest stop, he abruptly went silent, then fell to the ground. Janssen swooped in to check for breathing and a heartbeat, but Gisborne was already dead. He had suffered a massive heart attack. Janssen went for help and led a team to retrieve Gisborne's body the next day. Unfortunately, this wasn't Janssen's last visit to Man Gulch. That would come a decade later, and it would also end on a tragic note. Ten years after the fire, one of the smoke jumper's widows asked to visit her husband's marker. She had been battling deep depression since his death and was hoping for closure. Janssen obliged her request and guided her up the hill. When they reached the concrete crosses marking where each smoke jumper's body was found, they took a moment of silence. As he bowed his head, Janssen looked down and saw a tiny gray bone fragment protruding from the earth. The fire had been so hot that several bodies had partially cremated. Trying to spare her from the horrific truth, he quietly moved and set his foot on top of it so the widow wouldn't see. Unfortunately, the trip itself was not enough. Not long afterwards, the widow took her own life. Man Gulch seemed to have cursed Janssen. He was troubled by his experiences there for the rest of his life. His wife said that he had nightmares all the way up until his death in 1965. And Janssen wasn't the only one to suffer from lasting effects. Robert Salee refused to discuss the fire for decades, although he stayed on as a smoke jumper until 1951. Afterwards, he got a degree in forestry and joined the paper industry. The other smoke jumper to survive, Walter Rumsey, quit the Forest Service following the tragedy. He made a career in natural resource management and avoided all connections to Man Gulch for the rest of his life. He died in a plane crash in 1980. However, the most tragic end was Wagner Dodge. He attended every funeral for his smoke jumper crew and took blame and absolution in equal measure. He carried his guilt stoically and without complaint, a silent casualty of the wildfire. While Dodge stayed in the smoke jumper program until 1950, he never jumped on another fire. But he relived the painful experience with every subsequent interview in the press and every time he trained a new crew of smoke jumpers. Then, 
just five years after the Man Gulch fire, Dodge died of Hodgkin's disease. But the Man Gulch tragedy and the tragic deaths surrounding it were not entirely in vain. The review board found that the smoke jumpers had done the best they could, but the fire's behavior was simply too unpredictable. In response, the Forest Service used Gisborne's research to establish a fire science laboratory in Missoula. The lab still exists today and studies fire behavior, topography, fuels, and plans of attack for fighting fires. It's responsible for the majority of safety developments in modern wildland firefighting. The Man Gulch tragedy also revealed the shortcomings in communication and safety training for wildland firefighters. A new mandatory safety program was implemented in the following decades, culminating in the LCES system of 1990. LCES stands for Lookouts, Communication, Escape Routes, and Safety Zones. The LCES system mandates a lookout firefighter and the establishment of escape and safety areas before attacking a fire. However, no strategy in the world is foolproof, and as long as there are wildfires, there will be firefighters sent to suppress them. Man Gulch may have been the first wildfire to claim the lives of firefighters, but it certainly will not be the last. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. For more information on the Man Gulch tragedy, amongst the many sources we used, we found Young Men and Fire by Norman McLean and A Great Day to Fight Fire by Mark Matthews extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard.